Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where, Tomato, your critiques of autofiction killed Larry Kramer. I'm sorry. I repent. I repent. I take back anything I've ever said. Autofiction is the best genre. Well, it's too late now. He's dead. Today, we're going to be looking at the comic 1.9, Family Weekend, which originally premiered on omgcheckplease.tumblr.com on October 13th, 2013. I'm Secret OMG. Who's with me here today? Certain murderers, maybe? I plead the fifth for now and forever. My name is Tomato. And uh, I'm ready to start talking about the first woman in Czech Police history today. Yes, that's right. The first, number one. It was a long eight strips plus three hockey shit explainer comics. And we finally found an extra X chromosome. We're where we usually are, sitting in Biddy's dorm room, where he's saying that it's family weekend at Samwell, and his mother has made a seven-hour trip from Madison to Atlanta to Boston to get to Samwell. He says that his mother is his best friend, and he loves her to death, but she gets too excited about things, and she starts include, intruding in his vlog recording. Is it this vlog? Is it that vlog? And Biddy's just kind of like, I can't deal with this. Flash over to the Samwell Ice Hockey Rink, Faber, where his mother is cooing over a fancy-looking banner that's hanging over the ice and, like, how big the windows are. She keeps telling Biddy to pose for pictures. Biddy doesn't really want to. She gives him a little speech about, Eric Richard Biddle, you may go to Samwell University, but that does not mean you're too good to listen to your mother. And he sighs and says, yes, ma'am, and goes and poses as she's instructed. Mrs. Biddle starts gushing about Bob Zimmerman and whether or not he'll be sitting with her in the parents section. She compares Bob's looks to his son Jack's looks. Biddy says, mother, if you tell anyone you were Googling Jack and his dad, I will have a conniption. His mother then gives him a little background about how Way back in the day, his aunt had a poster of Bob Zimmerman, and nobody in Georgia had ever seen a hockey game, but they all thought that Bob Zimmerman was, quote, like all the Jonas Brothers rolled into one with a slice of Tim Tebow. Biddy poses by the ice, and he says to his mother that he's nervous about her watching him play, and also he doesn't want to have to worry about her, like, gossiping with or running her big mouth at Jack's dad. She says that she's nervous to watch him playing hockey, because some of those boys are really big, and Biddy is only 5'7". Biddy then says, I'm 5'6 and a half, and I blame your genes for that, but I've been getting help with the hitting from... And then he coyly says, one of the guys on the team. And also it's his third game and he hasn't fainted yet. This causes Mrs. Biddle to reminisce about when Biddy was tackled and curled up and started crying like he broke something. Biddy makes an offhand comment that coach, meaning his dad, doesn't like to talk about that still. Mrs. Biddle says, I told your daddy not to coach your peewee team. He thought y'all were his high schoolers. Then they head back to the house so that they can bake a pie. She says, oh, did you see that cobbler recipe posted to our site? And Biddy says, mother, please. You know I check our Pinterest like it's the news. Oh boy, what a strip. Honestly, I had completely forgotten this introduction strip, except in the sort of broad strokes. And I feel like there's a real... There's a real deep dive to be made here. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot here. So at the top of the outline, I wrote, congrats, you drew a lady. Biddy's mom in this strip is kind of parodical. Like, she's kind of your stereotypical, like, ridiculous, hysterical mom type. By the end of Check Plays, she is really one of the only, if not literally the only, well-characterized, semi-developed female character in the comic. And I feel like she really is the only one who has a little bit of an arc 
It's not a big arc, partly because we don't know a lot of things about her. So I'm not really sure where her starting out point is. There is a bit of conflict, ultimately, just a bit between Biddy and his mom, and they go on like a very brief journey together. And I think that's a lot more transition and development than we get from like any other female character in this comic, period. So who are the other female characters? None of them have appeared yet. We have Lardo. We have Caitlin Farmer, we have Camilla Collins, and we have Ford. Is there anyone else? George. Oh yeah, George, that's right. Jack's mom. Sure, she counts. We have Mandy and Jenny. Alice Atley, Biddy's thesis advisor. So we have these characters, but most of them pop in and pop out. I would like to actually make the case that Caitlin Farmer, Mandy and Jenny, and Camilla Collins are not in the comic. If any of them are depicted at all, it would have been like very briefly in the background with no lines doing nothing. And all of those characters are pretty much solely extant in this comic in terms of their relationships to men. I don't know, like they're not, like they're not characters. They're like background info. Yeah, but it's funny to me that now that you sort of traced out their arcs compared to like George, who's a successful whatever she is. She's the assistant GM of the hockey team that Jack ends up on. But these characters who are introduced earlier and whose relationships with men are primary, are like more present in my memory than these later characters like George. Actually, I don't know whether it's just because they came earlier, so I saw them in fanfic more and like their names stuck around in my head longer. We see so little of their personalities that they're not very memorable. Whereas I will say that like Mandy and Jenny are pretty memorable. But if I kind of zoom back and think about Lardo, who's the other sort of I would say, female character who gets any kind of real story time on the page. Saying that Mrs. Biddle is kind of the first woman who we encounter at all. I think at all. No, there's some women in the background on the flow strip, right? And in the kegster and stuff. But she's the first woman who has like a real speaking part that isn't like, shitty's hair is so beautiful, makes me vomit and also want to have sex with him or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too far into Lardo, partly because she hasn't been introduced and partly because we'll have more room to talk about her later. But I think this is an interesting point in regard to the question of female characters and also in regard to the question of Biddy's mom. Lardo is probably the female character who is depicted the most. She probably has the most on-screen appearances. She probably has the most presence in paratextual and extra material. She is part of the main cast, effectively, from next semester onward. If you removed her entirely from Check, Please, it would not change Check, Please at all. If you went through all of Check, Please and simply deleted her out of the entire comic, it would impact the comic not in any way. And I like her. I'm very fond of her for some reason. I think we can talk about that more when we get to like the strip where she's introduced, which is called Lardo. Having said that, Biddy's mom is not in that many strips, but she ends up having a lot of character development and kind of taking something of a journey and her presence and her views and her interactions with Biddy become kind of pivotal to the emotional arc that happens from the end of year three going into year four. In my hypothesis, which I think we can follow up on as we go along, along with everything else we keep saying that about, is that Check Please originally started as this quasi-episodic story about like friendship and bros and parties at the house and college hockey. But at a certain point, it becomes a story that's really about like Biddy's personal narrative about overcoming his origins and coming out and living as his true self. And I think that kind of forces his parents and his relationship with his parents back forefront into the middle of the story, so to speak. I agree. And I think if you delete Suzanne Biddle, you'd lose something in a way that you do not if you delete Lardo. 
You know who we forgot to mention at all? Oh, who? Uh, March and April. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. None of these female characters are anything. Like, none of them do anything. They're only extant in this text to give background details to the dudes who populate the main cast. Is it a problem that there aren't more or better female characters in Check, Please? Like, should we have to wait eight comics to get to number one? Is it an issue or is it okay because this is a comic that's basically about like the very male-dominated world of ice hockey telling what's ultimately a story about two guys who fall in love? Maybe women just don't elegantly fit into that space. I like stories that involve interesting women. That's a nice thing for me in my life. And I think especially as the story goes on and becomes more and more interested in this question of representation, particularly LGBTQ representation, not just G representation, but the whole shebang, right? Um, Which people kind of read into the comic in one way or another. Depending on what you're expecting out of the comic, it, it can be a problem. Mostly because of not of the comic itself, but because of the conversations happening around the comic. That's kind of where I become troubled by the lack. On the other hand, I think like, as far as a piece of media goes, it's okay to have stories that are not primarily about women. It's worth examining. I, this particular story coming out of the particular communities it's coming out of might not have like women in it, right? And particularly because it's being written by a woman, what does that mean? Like we can kind of talk about those things. I think the absence of women in this kind of story is not so much a problem with every single individual story that doesn't feature women. It's more the aggregate pattern of why women don't get featured and why there aren't like interesting, even minor characters who are women, particularly. Like, I think that's kind of worth talking about. But ultimately, what's the point of the story when it starts? It's to, if you ask me, tell a story in kind of the same or adjacent play universe as Hockey RPF, which is a world not particularly um, populated by women because it's based on a real world sport, which is hugely male dominated. It's not a particularly welcoming world as far as like sort of women go. So I think, I think if there's something worth critiquing here, it's like the sort of larger systems in which the story is operating and then the systems of narratives within which it's operating. I think Check, Please itself, like, sure, it's it's fine. Check, Please in particular also has the problem that the vast majority of what will ultimately become its many, many, many characters are not well-developed at all in any sense. And some of the characters who had been more or better developed than others float away from the narrative at various points. And I'm not just talking about Silhouette with a Cowlick, I'm also talking about Shitty and Ransom and Holster, and to a certain extent, even Jack. If they had had a female character who had been consistently on screen and also had some kind of arc or some kind of personality or some kind of bearing on the plot this would be a different conversation. It's also interesting that the character who ends up getting so developed is the mother. Everybody else who is sort of central to the story is a peer of the protagonist. And despite what we'll talk about with uh, the protagonist calling his mother his best friend, she's not his best friend, she's his mother. You know, the mother is basically like an archetype, and it's very easy to sort of characterize that kind of person. So I think it's like, to a certain extent, maybe lazy work that the comic is doing here. That you can basically guess without knowing anything specific about these characters, what kind of feelings and thoughts and journeys a mother might have in regard to her, like, only son who she's close to, growing up, moving away, developing his own personality and his own life, plus or minus being gay. The charge about sort of lack of female character or whatever can be bundled up in the critique of characterization more broadly. I don't think that they have to be separate. Once again, Ngozi is kind of relying on these 
genre conventions to do a lot of the work for her, which is fine. That's why genres exist, but it is hard then to create a coherent narrative that is not uh, relying so heavily on the structure built by like many other works. And it, it leads to kind of like a, a slightly incoherent story. And maybe that's related to what we talked about last time when we talked about what makes a good story versus what makes an entertaining story versus what makes good writing, entertaining writing. Um, maybe the characterization is part of why Check Please is entertaining, but not necessarily tightly written. I am kind of really fascinated by their relationship. And this introduction of this character as Biddy's best friend, particularly because when we see Biddy arrive in Samwell, it doesn't seem like he has anyone left in Georgia who he's in contact with, who was a peer. And then once he becomes friends with the hockey team, he doesn't seem to sort of reach out beyond that community. We don't really see him with anybody else. With literally one exception of Jack, we have no concept of what sorts of people any of these people associated with at all before they got to Samwell. Like, I don't know anything about, like, who Holzer's friends were, who Shitty's friends were, who Lardo's friends were. Even outside of the hockey team, it's very difficult to say who these people are associating with. So in one sense, it's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, you you graduate high school and you go to college, and I suppose for some people that means you've moved away, you've moved on, you're in a new part of your life now. At the same time... Biddy as the protagonist maybe would be held to a different standard. And coupled with this fact that he calls his mother his best friend, it just stands out as like a little weird. Like when he goes back to Georgia for the entire summer, which he does after his freshman year and then again after his sophomore year, is he like hanging out with other people? It strikes me as hard to believe that he would truly have no friends. First of all, he's very outgoing and very charismatic and seems almost like indefatigable when it comes to like doing personal outreach. Also, even if you want to stereotype Southern culture as rejecting the kind of person that Biddy is, any given place is going to have more than one outcast. Weirdos are their own group. I went to a religious school for elementary and middle school. I was not one of the popular kids. I also had a lot of friends. It was very obvious who was not part of the indominant group. And then we all hung out together. So I'd find it hard to believe that Biddy would have truly nobody aside from his own mother. From my own experiences, and I'll just say quickly, like I went to a high school where there were no gay people. Obviously, there were gay people, but nobody was out. It was not an accepting community. It wasn't in the South. It was in the Northeast. But it was not a community where that sort of thing was tacitly tolerated, even. And yet, I had a group of friends who were all sort of weird. And when we grew up, it turns out that most of us were queer. A not uncommon experience I have learned since. He either doesn't have friends or that he has sort of like separated himself from that community very stringently. And what does that mean? I think that that is more likely that you are like, I'm leaving this place, goodbye. And if I'm sort of looking at it from a within you know, from, from a sort of textual perspective as opposed to a doyless perspective or whatever. I think that it's totally possible that this character leaves his hometown and decides he's not going to talk to any of these people anymore because he's like living his new life in Massachusetts. There is this stereotype of sort of gay boys and their mothers either having a too close relationship or sort of a like the smothering mother is a typical way of coding a gay character. I don't know that Mrs. Biddle falls into this stereotype, but I think there's like a, there's a relationship between this version of Biddy and his mother and the way that their friendship is portrayed by Biddy and the way that sort of like men who are not straight, men who maybe don't perform masculinity in particular ways uh, and the way that media tends to portray the relationships between those men and their mothers. Like, I think there's a relationship here. Her being like, who are you talking to? Oh, is that your vlog? What are you doing? I'm in your room. Let's go to the house. Do you want to make a pie? Go over there. 
I'm going to talk to all of your friends' dads. I think that's very smothering mom. He calls her his best friend. But then as soon as he appears, he's like, do this, do that. And he tries to kind of decline or maybe sass her a little. And her reaction is... I'm your mother. You can't tell me what to do. First name, middle name, last name, go stand over there. And then he says, yes, ma'am. A best friendship is like a peer relationship. They're not peers. She's his mother. She's not acting like his friend. She's acting very much like his mother, which is appropriate, I should say. I think it's kind of weird when parents and kids are best friends. I am really curious about this, and I wonder if it's a narrative they tell each other. And I want, like, so, so Biddy has this narrative where his mother is his best friend. He's lying to her about a huge part of his identity, which we don't know for sure yet, but we'll find out soon. And that lie becomes a huge part of his narrative arc. Like, just speaking as someone who also lied to my mother about my sexuality for many years, like, I sure told my friends before I told my mother. That lie is a huge part of why it's not a peer relationship because there's there's more pressure on this relationship than there is on any friendship. That's how parenting and being childlike works. Is this a narrative in the family? Is this a narrative that Biddy tells other people? It doesn't seem like the sort of thing you'd tell your hockey bro-like friends that your best friend is your mother. Or is this just sort of his self-concept? I presume it's his self-concept. I think this is something that he's communicating to his vlog audience. It's part of what he's scripting within the story that he's telling to his audience. I, for me, like many things in this comic, it's hard for me to understand without putting it in relationship with other kinds of narratives. And for me, that other kinds of narratives is like queer coding, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Well, he's real fucking like queer coded in this comic. He's making all kinds of expressive hand movements. Very specific expressive hand movements. He's, he's very specifically in the first panel pointing to his chest with his thumb up and his fingers like on his sternum saying, now my mother's my best friend. Both of his wrists bent. I'm not trying to do anything other than literally describe what's is drawn. Yeah, and in the second panel, he's making the sort of like classic limp wrist pose, which is one hand thrown out, bent wrist. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I too, I'm just trying to explain what I'm seeing. And what I'm seeing is this very specific hand gesture, which for me is in relationship with like portrayals of gay men in media. Well, you want to know what's interesting about that is that as soon as he starts hanging out with his mother and they're depicted on screen together, he's wearing a brown overcoat, like a toggle button coat, and his hands are in his pockets in most of the scenes where he and his mother are together. And this is something that we've seen before, the, di the difference between how Biddy portrays his emotions on camera to his vlog and how he portrays them in front of other people. I think it's really telling that this is the case in front of his mother. <laughs> is Biddy wearing skinny jeans in this comic? Is What, what kind of jeans is he wearing? I literally him? don't know. And the one thing I will say is that in 2013, skinny jeans were widely adopted among everybody. I don't disagree with you, except in this panel where, uh, where Biddy's saying Justin and Adam's parents are going to be here so you can sit with them. Um, he's got a, a booted foot. You can see his winter socks, and then you can see his brown boots. The jeans are tucked into the socks, which are tucked into the boots. This, for me, was very rare when I was in college among the sort of like straight male athletes that I knew. I cannot think of anyone who would have worn this. I knew lots of women who wore this exact thing with the, like the socks were a whole thing. You would get these special like boot socks that you would show off. I don't know. It was a whole fashion thing, but I don't think I ever knew a guy to do it. And I don't know why I'm so obsessed with how Biddy's clothes like code him, but I am. And I'm really curious about this because in my experience, of dudes wearing skinny jeans, you wouldn't tuck them into your boot. Actually, I should say, I should say, I didn't know any straight men who did this. I, I did know gay men who did this. So I think maybe that's why I'm interested in it. And I just wanted your opinion whether he was wearing skinny jeans. And I'm also curious, like, how does Suzanne Biddle understand her son's presentation? I think that's something we can only speculate on. 
My understanding of the sort of extras and word of God comments, the things that I keep referring to as paratext, because that's what they are, he didn't actually know that Biddy was gay. She seems not, in fact, either shocked or bothered by it when she finds out. I don't know. I think we just don't know enough about the interior life of this woman. She seems way more interested and moved by the fact that her son is at this fancy college in this ice rink that looks like what you'd see on TV with a banner and he's on the hockey team and he's friends with like the son of this celebrity she used to jerk off to. She seems not to really be that concerned with or that interested in his interior life. I don't think that is so atypical. I think it's a pretty typical pattern for parents to think about kids as extensions of themselves who don't really have their own interior life. I think without knowing more about her and without seeing her in a greater variety of situations, I'm not sure we could really answer that question. Maybe my problem is I just don't know any jocks. I don't know any jocks anymore, but I did in college. I had a lot of friends who dated frat bros. I don't think Biddy dresses particularly gay. I don't think his sartorial choices are really that notable. I think if you were like getting a BFA in creative writing and you rolled up looking like this and you were wheeling a bunch of ladies, it wouldn't be so weird. It's the way that Biddy is depicting carrying himself and the sort of cadence he speaks with and the gestural way he inhabits scenes. The fact that he's putting his leg up and giving his mother the side eye pointing is much gayer than the clothes he's wearing. Mrs. Biddle, Mother Biddle, she compares Bob Zimmerman to Tim Tebow and the Jonas Brothers all wrapped up into one. And Biddy says, ew. And I think you can sort of agree with where he's coming from there. Tim Tebow, I kind of went down a rabbit hole on this. Just because this is a very, very not apt comparison. Tim Tebow was a football quarterback who won the Heisman Trophy in 2007 when he was playing for the University of Florida NCAA Division I football team. The Heisman Trophy is the trophy that's awarded every year to the best NCAA football player. He was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft in 2010. He was picked number 25 overall by the Denver Broncos. He was not Denver's first pick because they had traded for multiple first round picks in the 2010 draft. So their first first round pick at number 22 was actually Demarius Thomas. Tebow ended up playing two seasons with Denver and then one with the New York Jets. And then that was pretty much the end of his NFL playing career. He was on the practice squads of a couple teams through like 2015, but he never actually saw any gameplay after the 2012-2013 season. His passer rating is 75.3. I'm not going to explain passer ratings because who gives a shit but suffice to say 75.3 isn't great it's not like horrible but the nfl overall average is 88.6 and roughly like 100 plus is considered very good so 
Not like amazing. He also appeared in his whole career in two playoff games, lost one of them and then was out. And that was his last playoff appearance. He marked one touchdown in these playoff appearances. And then in 2016, after basically having failed at being a football player, became a major league baseball minor leaguer for the New York Mets. And that's basically where he's been since then. Tim T. Tebow's football career was pretty much completely over by the time that this strip appeared. He was basically a bust within the first season or two that he was playing for the Broncos. The comparison to Bob Zimmerman, who in this canon is supposed to be like a legend, is pretty much laughable. Either Ngozi doesn't know this or Biddy's mom doesn't know it. But I don't think Biddy's mom doesn't know it because if she states in this strip, her husband is a high school football coach. And if you read Biddy's tweets, which start about a year from now in the timeline of the comic, Biddy also knows a lot about and watches a lot of football, or at least he says he does. He's got a UGA flag in his bedroom at the house, which is usually a marker of allegiance to the UGA football team. And Georgians care quite a bit about college football, more so perhaps than NFL football. So they would have been deeply aware of Tim Tebow coming up playing football and winning the fucking Heisman Trophy in Florida. So the idea that Biddy's mom would make this comparison is, like, astounding. So I don't know how he his name became so well-known that, like, he's a name that I recognize. He was renowned for being, like, a hyper-devout Christian who would do this weird, like, getting down on the floor, squatting, like, prayer gesture that for a while people called T-bowing. Now, I didn't remember any of that. I just remembered that he was like vaguely Jesus-y. And, you know, I think for like a couple weeks or a couple months, he had like a really good college football season. And there was hype and speculation over whether or not he would be drafted. Then he was, and it didn't really come to much. And we all moved on. And we'd all moved on by about 2013. I don't know why I'm saying we, like I give a shit about Tim Tebow. This is not somebody who I ever was like personally invested in. But I think there might be an interesting connection here in the fact that he's like super Jesus-y. Do you want to say anything about like the Jonas Brothers? Oh, I would be thrilled to. Yeah? Um, Yeah, well, so the Jonas Brothers are, as we all know, or were... A teenage supergroup from Wyckoff, New Jersey. They became really popular uh, starting pre-2010. They hit kind of the height of their popularity around 2009, went on hiatus the following year, and then broke up right around the time this comic came out. And they were super Christian. Uh, So you found uh, an article in which Joe Jonas says in 2013, I was a pastor's kid, so eyes were always on me even then. I sat in the first pew of the church and I had to wear a suit every Sunday because my parents wanted me to be this role model that I didn't always want to be. And they very famously all wore promise rings right around the time that there were actually several sort of like late teenage, early adult stars who wore promise rings. There was a South Park episode about it. Oh, really? Yeah, there was, but it was in 2009, well preceding when this comic is taking place. But I think it's really interesting to think about this kind of like Christianity that's inherent in this particular strip. We have Tim Tebow, who's like genuflecting or something before before the football field. We have the Jonas Brothers, who are evangelical Christian, as I recall. Um, I will say that I don't know that much about Christianity in the South, but my impression is that the way that it fits into, into like the culture of Georgia is pretty different than the way that it fits into the culture of New Jersey, if only because like there's a really, really lots of different religions everywhere. And I don't know anything about Tim Tebow's like background, but 
I don't know, there's something uh, really interesting in the way that these two things come together with the fact that then we have Suzanne Biddle kind of pointing to, or I think it's Biddy who says, I'm already nervous about you watching me play. I don't want to worry about you talking at Bob Zimmerman like it's Sunday after church. So we have this kind of probably not purposeful, but interesting bringing together of this very Christian football player, these like promise be ringed, you know, slightly stale like teenage pop idols, and then talking to Bob Zimmerman like it's after church all in the same panel. Yeah, I do want to say that it's interesting that she says Tim Tebow and the Jonas Brothers, because getting like the Jonas Brothers reference wrong is the exact kind of thing that I would presume Biddy's mom would do. Like a middle-aged woman being loopy about like who's hot now and her reference is four years out of dates, that I understand. I feel like she probably would not refer to somebody she was trying to like make sound impressive as being anything like Tim Tebow in 2013. What's interesting about this to me is I don't recall any other references, Christiany or even vaguely religious things throughout the rest of the comic. It seems like religion pretty much evaporates. I don't know. I think it is kind of like, again, we're talking about genres and we're talking about how form sort of do your heavy lifting for you in terms of characterization, especially in this particular comic. Alighting the difference between Southernness and Christianness is a really, really easy shorthand. And we could probably talk more about it if it came back in this comic, but it really doesn't. I do think that it informs the way that we can kind of see Biddy's relationship with his mother and the secret of his sexuality, though. Even if it doesn't come up in important, explicitly textual ways, my experience as someone from the Northeast in which evangelical Christianity sits right alongside Catholicism, sits right alongside Judaism, that's kind of like, sits right alongside sort of waspiness, that's like the community I was raised in, and then other people of other religions, and I personally was not raised practicing, and so I don't have a particular um, cultural access to this kind of Christianity, I'm just interested in it. That presence informs how we can see Suzanne Biddle's potential negative reaction to Biddy's sexuality. Right around this time, I was routinely getting into fights. I was a very feisty, like 20-something year old, and I was routinely getting into fights with like evangelical preachers who walked up and down my college campus. And I went to campus, I went to college in a pretty big city, not a huge city, but a pretty big city in the Northeast that was pretty liberal. And we still had people who were like, handing out the little green Gideon's Bibles and telling you that like Jesus had wrath in his heart. There were gay people around. So that's an experience I had right around this time, right around my college experience. And I just think that that informs the sort of tension of homophobia that is starting to creep into the comic, even if it hasn't been explicitly addressed yet. Would make sense, wouldn't it? But I do also think that it is a little bit like making assumptions based on stereotypes we have about who is homophobic and where do those attitudes come from and why, it's not really followed through on in the rest of this comic at all. I think we can make guesses about what we were starting to see constructed here, but I don't think we have enough to sort of build a fuller case that extends out of this comic. I grew up in a major metropolis, and I basically spent my entire life living in major metropolises. Homophobic Christianity was something that I was only ever exposed to, like, through the media, like, on the news. You know, you'd see press coverage of like focus on the family or Jerry Falwell or, you know, especially during the George W. Bush era, all kinds of people saying all kinds of crazy things around the gay marriage fights extending from, you know, the sort of late 90s, early 2000s into the, you know, let's say mid 2010s. 
But it was all external. None of it was coming from within my community. And in fact, the brand of Christianity that I was exposed to through the churches in the communities that I inhabited was all very much this like rainbow flag on the sign outside. We accept everybody. We love everybody. This is a community for everybody. Jesus' message is one of love. Everyone is welcome here. I have no personal relationship to Christianity broadly defined in any sense whatsoever. So it's very difficult for me to speak personally or from experience about the extent to which that is borne out. But I do also think that maybe this is veering a little bit away from check please and into sort of like the meat of this issue. But to a certain extent, it's really easy to sort of say, this type of person is the type of person or this type of organization is the type of organization that is discriminatory. And oftentimes they are. But it's very easy to do that rather than addressing the holistic picture of the way that systemic oppression works. Let the record show, um, I didn't grow up in a major metropolis, but I didn't grow up in like bumfuck nowhere either. I grew up in a pretty bustling part of the country that was a suburb of a major metropolis. And my parents are Democrats and like, you know, whatever. So I wasn't raised in a particularly conservative family, but that's, this was a, was a big part of my community, just like the high school I went to or whatever. So it's interesting how geographically related this is. This is why it's hard for me to speak about how it, how it plays out in Georgia, because I know it plays out in really specific ways in the places I've lived. Um, even where I live now, it plays out in like completely different ways than where I lived before. And I live in like a big liberal metropolis. In check, please, when so much of the characterization is done through these gestures rather than these sort of like thoughtful explorations. I think it's worth looking at a gesture and saying, what can I extrapolate from this? Because so much of the characterization is just a gesture towards a broader social narrative. My guess is that that's something that's going to hold for the duration of our reading. I don't know. You've written down this question about, do we see anybody who is explicitly not from a Christian background? Holster's not. Holster is Jewish, or at least he's half Jewish. That's only really confirmed in an extra where he's standing in front of a menorah. Oh, she drew the menorah wrong too. Yeah, okay. So, oh my God, is this going to end up in the fucking podcast? That was a winter sketch jam on like New Year's Day Maybe it was New Year's Day 2017 or maybe it was New Year's Day 2018. I don't remember. But I remember going to that sketch jam and saying in the chat, you drew the menorah wrong and her being like, oh, cool. Thank you. So I don't know why the wrong version of the menorah is circulating because I like have a very clear memory of her fixing that. I think it's very obvious that Ngozi doesn't have a frame of reference for what a Jewish experience is. Everybody else doesn't really have any discernible religious faith whatsoever. You can guess, like kind of by looking at them, you can pretty much guess most of them are probably some kind of Christian denomination. That said, none of these characters appear to be thinking about religion at all, like for the duration of this comic, except that they celebrate Christmas and they celebrate Easter, which are things that like, you have to be Christian to celebrate, I think. About it, we hear about the infamous tackle, the tackle that launched a thousand, a thousand parade floats. Let's hear about it, Tomato. Well, I'm just really interested in the way they talk about it. Like, Biddy and his mother have been talking this whole strip, and neither of them have a particularly strong accent in the text. And then all of a sudden, we have curled up and crying like you broke something. Coach still don't like to talk about that. Like, what is happening? We're, okay, forgive my accent. I'm sorry. But what is happening where all of a sudden we get these apostrophes and these sort of like southernisms? Like, I don't really understand why the tone suddenly shifts in this moment. Is this the tackle that we see? later on? Was that the first time he was ever tackled? Or is it just some one tackle among many? Like, I don't know. I presume, because the context we get later in the comic is Biddy crying to his mother about how he can't play anymore. Kind of interesting to frame this 
like apparently traumatic memory in this kind of weirdly cutesy way (laughs) or something. And then I went down a real rabbit hole, which I won't share all of the information with you now about, but I looked up peewee football and sort of like state-sponsored football programs in Georgia, in um, particularly in the northern Georgia area, which is where Madison, Georgia is. And I looked up all these different rules about full contact in youth football. And there are like guidelines, which you're supposed to follow. I would bet that like in many things, particularly pre sort of like concussion conversations that were happening right around the time this comic was written, that these guidelines were more or less stringently met by various coaches, depending on that coach's particular feelings. Apparently in Georgia in the year 2020, so I don't know what it was like when Biddy was a kid, there is full contact in youth football is limited to 90 minutes per week, which is plenty of time to get smacked on the head, by the way. It starts as young as five. So that's like pretty fascinating. Maybe we can talk about it more at another time. I don't know if it's worth getting into, but even though I was previously talking in other podcast episodes about sort of like how you can teach a contact sport and how contact sports can be like this kind of like cooler, interesting thing taught in these interesting ways, thinking about five-year-olds like beating the shit out of each other just really depresses me. I'm sure not all five-year-olds beat the shit out of each other at football practice, but it, I was shocked at how young contact football starts. And I wonder how old Biddy was. You know, he, he's an elementary schooler, but we don't know how old during this kind of early tackle. And that kind of also puts into an interesting perspective the use of the, the slur that gets thrown at him. Like, if he's like nine, do you know what I mean? That's pretty grim. We know that he gets locked in the, in the closet in seventh grade but we don't know when that tackle is. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to assess how old he is based on the scenes we see from that tackle, which are drawn at the end of year four. I get the feeling that, again, I've used the word pathologized before to refer to Jack's trauma or Jack's mental illnesses in a way that like explains the way that he's acting early in the comic almost as an excuse. I feel like this is also sort of pathologizing like what's wrong with Biddy in a way that doesn't necessarily add up. My guess is Biddy is far from the only little kid at practice who gets tackled and reacts to it badly because social conditioning can only take you so far. Some people don't want to be physically injured or like crushed by multiple other guys. It's hard to separate out the physical violence from the verbal violence of being called the F word that one time. And of course, we don't see that referenced at all in this strip. I, I don't even know if Ngozi had planned that particular incident, you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know either, and I think it's hard to say. I think it's probably not going to be possible to figure that out. I actually, upon rereading this strip, I was like, oh, maybe there is some more narrative symmetry than I remembered. Because this experience of being tackled and being upset about it isn't one that's brought up. Like, I actually think the closet thing was much more memorable for me than this throwaway comment about him getting curled up and crying after being tackled. So he played football. He got tackled. He said he didn't want to do it. He presumably kept doing it for at least a while, or we're not told that he quits. Then he switches to ice skating, or maybe was ice skating alongside the whole time, then switches to non-contact hockey. I don't know. There's something like kind of not fully adding up about that trajectory, but it doesn't matter. He's here now and he's falling in love with a menace. And that's great. I think it's not possible to figure it out. Maybe the author has some frame of reference for like sequence of events. Hard to say. Biddy basically says that he's taking his mom back to the house to show her the kitchen so they can bake a pie there. For some reason, I really got tripped up on this. You don't live there. Like I could see the guys who do live there, which at this point in time are Jack Shitty, Ransom Holster, and Johnson. 
being okay with like other boys on the hockey team hanging out there and probably okay with Biddy hanging out there and like using their kitchen and making food that they can eat. But I feel like bringing his mom over to like a house that he doesn't live in to like occupy the space while they bake a pie is kind of weird. I wonder if he asked if it was okay to like, hey, can I bring my like 50 something year old mother over to the house so that we can like make a pie and like she can hang out with all of you and meet my friends. I think that's kind of bizarre. But even if he did ask, it's just like why? It just feels like this weird violation. The way in which this comic wants to like integrate the parents into like the social lives of the late teens and 20-somethings characters is very weird to me. Like the last thing I would have wanted when I was 18 years old and a freshman in college would have been for like my parents to come and hang out in a space with me and my friends. Maybe... Actually, almost certainly what I would have been comfortable with would have been if my parents had taken all of us out to dinner and like bought all of us food. But like hanging out in like our shared space, just like, hey, y'all, would have really weirded people out, I think. I also think it's interesting that she asked Biddy, do you think you'll move in next year? And he says, probably, which is like very sloppy foreshadowing. But also, when we get to comic 123, which is the sort of secret last comic in, in year one of Biddy's time on his love journey, he seems, like, shocked and surprised and, like, really clueless that he, like, got dibs from Johnson and will be moving into the house. The fact that Biddy's like, hey, I found a house that I can bake pies at. Do you want to come and hang out there? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Do you think you're going to move in next year? Again, to me, it feels like uh, what I described in the last podcast as the hand of the writer. This is maybe something I didn't notice the first time around because I was like, bright colors, hockey, fun boys. All right. I think actually much of the characterization, much of the sort of setup is hand of the writer. There's not a lot of actual work devoted to developing the characterization. We see most of that in the hockey shit strips and in like the occasional group scene. But for the most part, we don't see that. It's sort of like Ngozi's hand is reaching in and setting up all these like dolls in a hockey love circle or something. And then once they're in the circle, like things can, things can begin. But we just, we don't see the development of these friendships. We kind of just see like these friendships are set in place. Okay, now we believe in them go. I was very willing to accept it the first time around. Now that I'm reading it again, I'm thinking like, oh, actually, that's like not very well done. I think at the end of this semester, we're going to need to maybe do a little bit of like recapping. I remember Check Please being really good until it got really bad. And it's not that I'm not enjoying it. And it's not that there aren't things that I like, but I'm feeling kind of weird about how I'm feeling about it. So maybe we'll have to take a step back and talk about this a little more later. Oh boy. Well, next time... We'll be looking at 1.10, Samwell versus Yale 1. So we're going to get into the hockey. We're not even going to see any hockey in Samwell versus Yale 1. I think we're going to have to wait for uh, Samwell versus Yale 2. Oh, I forgot that. I clearly haven't revisited these strips in a while. Oh, this, this next strip, here's, here's what we get in our next strip. We get some French. We'll, we'll need you for that. Okay, I'll do my best. Although, again, I promise, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't have a good Canadian French accent, but I'll, I'll do my best. If you want to talk to me about Canadian French or anything else, you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com and you can find our podcast at checkdispleased.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Podbean and Spotify. I accept concrete at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R. I think we always end it by saying bye. Bye. Bye, guys. That's why legendary fashion photographer Bob Zimmerman shouldn't have encouraged his son to do heroin.